God sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh to deliver the Israelites from bondage to the Egyptian people and to bring them back to the land God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was the purpose for God's assault of the gods of ancient Egypt, and it is the purpose of God's assault of the gods of the West today. As God awakened the people of Israel so long ago, God is awakening his people again through these plagues and freeing us from our slavery to the gods of this age. And though it is true that even after leaving Egypt and entering into a covenant relationship with God at Mount Sinai, many of the values and practices of Egypt remained in the hearts of God's people, still the power of the Egyptian gods over the people of Israel was broken fundamentally at the Red Sea, which is Greek, or the Sea of Reeds, which is what the Hebrew says. The recollection of the prophets of Israel continues in Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through chapter 14, verse 31. Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Therefore God led the people around by way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in battle formation from the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will certainly take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Sukkot and camped in Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, so that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, from the presence of the people. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Haharot, between Migdol and the sea. You shall camp in front of baal Zephon, opposite it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people, and they said, What is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he had horses harnessed to his chariot and took his people with him. And he took six hundred select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. So the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them, camping by the sea, beside Pi-Haharot, in front of Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were coming after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will perform for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again, ever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and reach out with your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. And as for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they will go in after them, 
and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and through his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Therefore the one did not approach the other all night. Then Moses reached out with his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. But at the morning watch the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians each said, Let me flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out with your hand over the sea, so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses reached out with his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. In this final assault, God revealed the falseness and impotence of all the gods of Egypt. Hopi and Kanum, the gods of the flooding of the Nile and of water, were helpless to control the waters of the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea. Heket, the goddess of birth and the breath of life, was helpless as life was taken from the Egyptian soldiers. Wajet and Bess, the protectors of Pharaoh and the royal family, were impotent before the onslaught of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus. The technological prowess of the God Ptah, evidenced in the great chariots of Egypt, did not prevail. The gods of the eastern desert, Set and Min, were defeated in their own territory as God defeated the Egyptians in the desert east of Egypt by using an eastern wind. The sun deities Hator, Apis, Re, Amun, and Horus were overcome by the darkness of confusion that the God of Israel sent upon the Egyptian army. The gods of healing, Heka, Sekhmet, and Isis, along with the God of resurrection, Kepri, could not heal or raise the fallen dead. Instead, all of Egypt's army was sent to join Osiris in the underworld, never to return. Essential to the prophetic recollection of Israel's exodus from Egypt is that God himself defeated the gods of ancient Egypt, exposing their false claims to power and the foolishness of worshiping them. No Israelite raised a sword, organized a protest, or defeated an enemy. God himself did battle for Israel. And as God said through Moses in the verses we've just read, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will perform for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again ever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. This theme resonates throughout the scriptures. 
Though humans have many responsibilities in the world and though God expects us to live in relationship with him in submission to his wisdom and by following Jesus and faith in him, humanity is not tasked with defeating the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. When confronted with certain destruction by the nation of Assyria, King Hezekiah of Judah cried out to God out of this theological conviction when he prayed the following in Isaiah chapter 37, beginning in verse 16. Lord of armies, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see, and listen to all the words of Sennacherib, who sent them to taunt the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the countries in their lands, and have thrown their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but only the work of human hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. But now, Lord, our God, save us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. And the same truth is revealed at the final battle described in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he'll rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We stand against the forces of evil by faith in Jesus and submission to him, clothing ourselves in the full armor of God. But we are not tasked with defeating them. As God himself defeated the gods of ancient Egypt, God himself will defeat the gods of our age. We are living now in the midst of that battle, and the people of God must awaken As God opens our eyes, we must repent and turn from these false gods and false idols. And we must return to love, to loyalty, to chesed of the one true God of all creation. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus. But it seems that even now many who have claimed to follow Jesus do not want to see, nor do they want to awaken. Why? There is no way to answer that question absolutely. Why did the Israelites on so many occasions curse Moses and wish to return to Egypt? Impatience, fear, frustration, fatigue, rebelliousness, it's hard to say. Perhaps the following episode from the Gospel according to John can help us to appreciate the difficulty in moving from blindness to sight. The following record has been preserved for us in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must carry out the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming, when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spit on the ground and made mud from the saliva and applied the mud to his eyes, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he left and washed and came back seeing. So the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? 
Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. The man himself kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made mud and spread it on my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought the man who was previously blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath on the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight, and he said to them, He applied mud to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was dissension among them. So they said again to the man who was blind, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it about him, that he had been blind and had received sight, until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight, and they questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents then answered and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already reached the decision that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be excommunicated from the synagogue. It was for this reason that his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They spoke abusively to him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is the amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if someone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and yet you are teaching us. So they put him out. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and upon finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered by saying, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, I believe, Lord. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those who were with him from the Pharisees heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now that you maintain we see, your sin remains. This episode in the life of Jesus begins with a humbling truth. Sometimes what is happening to us is about more than us. In this case, this man had spent his entire life blind so that Jesus could use him as an illustration on this occasion. The good news for him is that none of his contemporaries were far distant from him in this respect. Nor are we today. We too have been born blind. And like this man so many centuries ago, 
This is not our fault. We were born in darkness. We might be tempted to ask, along with Jesus' disciples, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus' response was that neither this man nor his parents had sinned. What a penetrating and meaningful response. The truth is that the rebellion that led to this man's blindness, to the blindness of his contemporaries, and to our own, occurred millennia before either he or his parents were born. His blindness and ours was birthed in Eden. Even more, until he had been born in a time, he had been born in a time of God's merciful forbearance. Until the arrival of John the Baptist and of Jesus, no prophet had been sent to Israel for several centuries. God had fallen prophetically silent. During such times, many claimed to speak for God, and there were no true prophets apart from those preserved in the scriptures to correct them. Jesus told a parable that helps to illustrate this reality in Luke chapter 20, verse 9 through 18. But he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and leased it to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him his share of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, but they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, but this one too they wounded and threw out. Now the owner of the vineyard said, What am I to do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they discussed with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and put these vine growers to death and will give the vineyard to others. However, when they heard this, they said, May it never happen. But Jesus looked at them and said, Then what is this statement that has been written? A stone which the builders rejected. This has become the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will crush him. Obviously, this parable highlights the seasons in which God did send prophets, and then finally the season in which he sent his Son, God in the flesh, Jesus. But within the confines of this parable, there are seasons between the sending of prophets as well. The season in which the man went on a journey for a long time, and the seasons between the sending of his servants and his Son. Those born in such gaps experience God's merciful forbearance, but they also experience the dominion of the vine growers to whom the vineyard has been leased. This man was born in such a time, as were we. Why does God allow such a season of blindness and darkness? Jesus responded by saying, It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He was born blind so that God in Jesus might display his glory through the miracle of sight. We too have been born blind so that God might perform a similar miracle today. Let's remind ourselves of how the recollection continues. Picking up in verse 6, When he had said this, he spit on the ground and made mud from the saliva and applied the mud to his eyes, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he left and washed and came back seeing. In just about every other recounting of Jesus' healing ministry, the healing was either requested by the one healed or was done in response to a request for healing brought by someone on behalf of another. This incident is somewhat unique, both in that the man who was born blind did not ask to be healed, and in that Jesus did not ask him if he wanted to be healed. Jesus simply imposed the healing upon him. Jesus did to this blind man what he was doing to the people of Israel generally. He imposed sight both on him and on them. And perhaps that was a less welcome imposition than we might guess. 
The text emphasizes that this man was born blind, which means in part that he had never learned to read, never learned to trade, and had not been allowed to participate in the religious observances of the Jewish temple. Providing sight to this man, as much of a blessing as it surely was, also came with quite a cost. He had known life as a beggar, but now he would have to learn to care for himself. He had a lot of catching up to do. This is partly why people love darkness, why people don't want to see, why people want to stay as they are. Healing has a high cost because it changes everything about one's life. Who we have been is familiar and in some ways comfortable. Learning how to live in entirely new ways is challenging beyond belief, and many would prefer to stay with what they know. But if we are to follow Jesus into eternal life, he must heal our sight. This blind man had no choice because he was assigned to us. For those who wish to follow Jesus, sight will be imposed on us as well. And as much as we long to see, we may not like what we see. This was certainly the case with this man who could barely enjoy the miracle before he was attacked by the religious leaders of his day. The episode continues now picking up in verse 8. So the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. The man himself kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made mud and spread it on my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. Humans are remarkable at adapting to our lives and our environments once we accept our limitations and build confidence in our strengths. And yet, change is so difficult that once we've adapted, it often takes something cataclysmic to get us to embrace the process again. As much as the gospel is a gift, it's also an intrusion. We would probably all agree in principle that it's better to see than not to see. And yet, if we have adapted to not seeing, especially if that's been our experience from the day we were born, some people would prefer to stay as they are. This is the world we understand, and we know how to make our way in it. But there's more to this challenge. The people around a person are also accustomed to a certain way of life. If this person in their community is healed, their lives will change too. Who's going to teach this person to read? Who's going to apprentice him and teach him a trade? Not only do we sometimes resist being healed because of the fear of change, but many around us would prefer to keep us as we were. So healing can actually be unappealing, and not only to the healed, but also to the rest of the community that now has to make room for the healed person. In our case too, we are born separated from God and blind to his truth. And many of our earthly and spiritual caregivers are like the authorities in John chapter 9. They don't want to believe our changes from God. So they either try to get us to return to what we were, or to admit that nothing has really changed and our former lives were deceptions. Alcoholics often experience this as friends try to get them to have just one drink. Teenagers experience this when their friends try to pressure them to do drugs or to cheat on tests or to sneak out of the house past curfew. And many of us experience this when our friends and family enable our self-destructive behavior. Sometimes it seems as though the whole world around us is designed to keep us as we are, or perhaps as they desire us to be. The gospel intrudes on that world and sabotages those efforts. And because God's healing upsets everything, we should expect the world to try to convince us to stay as we are. Following God involves change. Following Jesus necessitates transformation. 
We may not know what role we are to play in the larger narrative of God, but we can be certain that, for those of us who follow Jesus, that role involves healing. It involves dying to sin and living to Jesus. It involves exodus out of Egypt, that is, freedom from our slavery to self-obsession and to decay. How do I know? Because though some of us are made for noble purposes, and others for common use, according to Romans 9, and though God distributes the gifts of the Spirit as He sees fit, the fruit of the Spirit, and freedom from the tyranny of sin, death, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, are the inheritance of all who follow Jesus. No matter our role in the story, we are all beings made in God's image, all reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus, all freed from the tyranny of sin and death by the grace of God through our trust in Jesus' example, teachings, and sacrifice, and all called to live in harmony with the character and requirements of God. You and I were born in Egypt, born under the dominion of the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It is true that those of us who have followed Jesus have joined a community within these nations, a community of exiles who are rightly citizens of the kingdom of God, just as Israel was a nation apart within the larger nation of Egypt, and just as the exiles from the tribe of Judah were a people apart from the larger Babylonian empire. This is God's vineyard, but has been lent out to vine growers who have long refused to submit to his claims on it. Even more, you and I were born in a period of God's merciful forbearance, a time between the sending of his servants. We were not left as orphans in the world, of course. Jesus has poured out his spirit on those who follow him, and we've been given the words God spoke to and through his prophets and apostles in the Christian scriptures. But still, we were born in the dark and in a season of mercy. Through the Spirit of God and the Word of God, we found a light in this dark place and we began to see, but still we have lived in the West, have been taught to be Westerners, learned to navigate the world of the West, and have come to worship our God as the gods of the West have desired to be worshipped. God is now doing two things. As he assaulted the gods of ancient Egypt, he is assaulting the gods of the West. And as God awakened the Israelites to who he was through his plagues, God is healing the blinded eyes of his people through the plagues that have come and are still yet to come upon the West. I am a servant sent to warn the church of its idolatries and to call followers of Jesus to repent and to return to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus, as he has been revealed to us in the scriptures of Israel's prophets, the First Testament, the Old Testament, and in the teachings of the apostles of Jesus, the New Testament. Many during these years of silence have claimed to speak for God and have led God's people into the worship of idols in his name. This is no new occurrence. This has been the stock and trade of false prophets, false priests, and false teachers through the history recorded in the Christian scriptures. When God is merciful, peddlers of pleasant lies and deceptively desirable doctrines arise, and many who claim to follow God are anxious to embrace their pleasantries. But in his own time and season, God again sends his servants to warn the vine growers and the laborers in his vineyard that the season of merciful forbearance is nearing its end. Such a time as this. God spoke to Balaam through a donkey, to Moses first through a bush, to Elijah through silence, to Mary through an angel, and to Peter through human flesh. The vehicle is irrelevant. As John the Baptist declared prophetically to those who came to hear his proclamations in Luke chapter 3, Verse 7b through 9. You offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, produce fruits that are consistent with repentance. 
And do not start saying to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children for Abraham. But indeed the axe is already being laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Out of these stones. It is only the message that matters. And whether or not it originates with God. Even more, only God can confirm his message or expose a person as a false teacher. It is for the one who has ears to hear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. It is for God alone to vanquish the gods of the West. It is for Jesus alone to heal our blindness and our deafness. It is for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus alone, to proclaim the sending of the Son. May your eyes be open to the Scriptures and to the living Spirit of God, placed as a seal upon those who have truly followed Jesus. As Jesus proclaimed to the the religious leaders of his day. For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those who were with him from the Pharisees heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now that you maintain we see, your sin remains. Hear the word of the Lord, followers of Jesus. The day of the Lord is upon us. And the war with the false gods of this world has begun. Repent and separate yourselves in what you value and how you think and in what you do from Babylon and her citizens. Then watch and see the deliverance of our God. And as you watch, remember to heed the word of God spoken through the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 1 through 21. We've read it before in this series. But these are God's words to us as we learn to live in hostile territory in the midst of a battle that God must fight. Paul wrote, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many parts in one body, and all the body's parts do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually parts of one another. However, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to use them properly. If prophecy in proportion to one's faith, if service in the act of serving, or the one who teaches in the act of teaching, or the one who exhorts in the work of exhortation, the one who gives with generosity, the one who is in leadership with diligence, the one who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Love must be free of hypocrisy, detest what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never repay evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. 
Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Those who do not trust Jesus by living in these ways do not belong to him.